You can't talk about oral sex in front of a group of 20-year-olds because just by mentioning the word will make them start doing it in the aisles right now in the service <laughs> while they're listening to their satanic drum music. <laughs> Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to talk a little bit about, um, I guess it's inspired by a video essay that I made on YouTube, but it's inspired by, I guess, larger tragic events that were the Georgia shooting where a young man killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women, and there has been a lot of speculation and investigation into possible motives because it didn't clearly jump out at people. Uh, this seemed to kind of have more nuance. Was it anti-Asian hate? Was it misogynist hate? Was it, uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be misogynist hate. It would be, was it misog- misogyny? Um, was it, um, sex addiction? Was it something else? And so, uh, Troy and I have a sort of unique perspective on another angle that has come to light that some people have been talking about and that I concentrated on in this video, and it is about the young man's evangelicalism and how that feeds into a type of toxic shame. It was reported that the young man was trying to eliminate temptation, And, of course, the police and a lot of people translated this as sex addiction, which I think is a sort of almost an easy way out. And so I think uh, what I wanted to do was kind of peel the layers back a little bit and and think about what constitutes this form of sex addiction potentially that is tied to uh, a system, a religious system that um, feeds guilt and shame that might cause somebody to make extreme extreme to take extreme measures in eliminating the sources of that temptation and then of course why would he identify it in uh these these women so that's kind of i think what we're going to talk about is that about right dude yeah that sounds good to me i thought your your video essay was great and i had a lot more i wanted to talk about with you about it and uh cool. since you weren't sick of talking about it after doing your essay we figured we might as well address it on the podcast Sounds good to me, man. So yeah, so that'll be coming up in the main segment. Want to give a quick reminder that you can go and support us over at patreon.com slash owls at dawn, where you can get access to bonus episodes, our Discord chat, which has been fire. I love it. Thank you so much for all the patrons that are out there that are engaging in cool chats and sharing art and all can, asking deep, intimate questions and all kinds of things. It's been really phenomenal. So thank you so much. Hopefully we can keep building a community there. And uh, I think that's pretty much it in terms of admin stuff. Obviously, we've got merch. You can go check that out at owlsatdawn.com slash merch. Or just go to the website, and then you can click on the merch tab. So I think that's all the admin shit. Let's get into this madness. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah. So you know the first thing we got to do before we start talking about whatever we're talking about in the main segment is that shitty minute, bro. Yeah. That's the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Well, I, I think we've kind of talked about, like, uh, generational pseudoscience before, right? Where people are talking about there's the boomers and then the Gen Xers and then the millennials and then now the Zoomers. And it's kind of silly. But 
Um, I just want to say, so recently I have joined TikTok, right? I mean, I've, 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 I had a TikTok before, <laughs> and I don't remember if I, yeah, I had a TikTok before, but I didn't really use it too much. Like, I just like scrolled through and watched other people's videos, and it, it's friggin', it's unreal, man. It just makes me die of laughter. But <laughs> I, I have decided that I'm going to use this as like a, a new form of content creation. I'm actually kind of having fun doing kind of like this little series of videos where it's like, let's talk about. So, um, you know, I, I'll be like, let's talk about, and then whatever the issue is, and I talk for like, you know, 60 seconds or something like that, 50 seconds or whatever. And it's a nice little bite-sized way for me to produce little snappy content, and it's me like walking around town. Anyway, this is not a plug for my TikTok, but the thing is, is TikTok has taught me something that I think is so interesting, because we often talk about, you know, with like the climate marches and things like that, about how clever the Zoomers are, and about how politically engaged they are, and about how quote-unquote woke they are. But one of the other things that we don't often talk about, how creative and clever they are artistically. Like, Hmm. if you took an artist from the fucking early 20th century and you showed them these cuts and the mashes and the mixing and the sort of the speed with which these young people are using the tools of digital technology, if you showed them that, I think they would be like, what the... Like, that's unbelievable that this 14-year-old kid is doing this amazing technological thing. And I just don't think we give them enough fucking credit. And I actually sometimes come away from TikTok and I'm like, you know what, man? We're actually okay. Like, we are okay <laughs> in the world. Like, like literally. Like, I feel like people are good and people are creative and people are clever and they're they're tuned in and they're aware of things they know what's going on they're aware of the systems of oppression and yeah there's a lot of political forces against them and yeah it's on a platform that is um that is that is extracting massive data etc cetera, etc cetera. i get all of that but you know what sometimes i just come away from it and i'm like we're okay man like i you know i just i feel like hope and, uh, and maybe I'm just, like, libidinally manipulated by the affects and the flows. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm just fucking deeper in the Matrix and they've got me. Or maybe they really are pretty fucking clever. And they really are pretty goddamn artistic. And I don't know. I think we just need to we need to pay attention to these things a little bit more. And, and I don't know. And so, especially for the people that are like, ah, fucking millennials or the Zoomers, you know, they're just lazy and they're entitled and they're weak and all this other stuff. Like, you guys, just shut up, you know? Like, let's just stop that. That's just not helpful. Um, but, but yeah, man, that's not even really what I'm talking about. That's kind of an issue that, that, that deserves a shitty rant, but I think we've talked about that previously. I'm more just like, man, we don't give them enough damn credit for being freaking creative as heck, you know? And I think part of this, too, is just that if you grow up, come out of the womb with a freaking smartphone in your hand or the the tools of new media at your fingertips, you kind of just come out as a content creator. And there's kind of something amazing about creating a world filled with creatives, you know? So that's kind of that's kind of my thing, man. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking as you were talking about this, we have talked on the podcast before several times, I think, about the utility of boredom. And that it's only really through boredom mm. that you end up experimenting and kind of getting out of your comfort zone in a way that allows you to be creative and to extend your skills and actually learn. Uh, or at least that's a necessary condition if it's not sufficient. And so 
and then we often say, you know, like our generation or people who graduated college or were in college when the crash happened, financial crash happened, we kind of have a an almost universal sense of never ever being bored because there's just constantly stuff to do. You're you know you're constantly hustling, um, whether it's for people like us and our friends who are in academics and who are you know very unlikely to ever get the fulfilling job we hope to get, and yet we're you know working sixty to eighty hour weeks and. Um, even when we're not working, we're really working, thinking about stuff and that we miss being bored because having that opportunity is such a, it's both healthy and it's good for, you know, moving yourself along and progressing yourself as a person in various domains. Mm. But it seems like maybe, and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, Zoomers have sort of been able to be bored again, given that Mm. when you have, you know, your phone in front of you all the time. Anytime you're just kind of sitting around, you can just mess around, you know, and just play with stuff. <laughs> yeah. So they're maybe not bored as often or the length of time, the quantity of time isn't as much. But because they have these tools in front of them, they can sort of utilize that boredom for creative ends more often than we could. Like I remember when I was bored and I was a teenager, um, it was like, you know, messing around on guitar or stuff like that. Right. And that was great because that's how you learn and that was like a intrinsically valuable experience to have but then only i ever got to deal with that for the most part now these kids will do that they'll noodle around with whatever technology and then it becomes content that everybody can experience and that's pretty wonderful yeah again it makes me think of that thing that i i often talk about um the either everything is boring but no one is bored or everyone is bored but everything is boring so it's it's kind of like in a sense that they're they're they, they move through both of those spaces, but maybe it's the nothing, nothing is actually boring because it's all stimuli and fucking intense, uh, intense external and in, in, intense external stimuli to try to just manufacture dopamine hits and, um, just fucking everything's trying to snap you out of your, uh, an aesthetic state, you know, um, bright lights and everything's flashy. So no one's Nothing is boring, but there's something that maybe everyone is bored. And um, I don't know, maybe it's like the speed with which certain people operate now because they they think faster and they move faster and um, their attention is tuned into these like faster rates of production or something like that, that it makes their boredom, if you will. Like let's talk about like ontological boredom. Maybe it doesn't last throughout, uh, you know, an eight-hour eight session, but – that even if it's only like a 30 minute moment of like deep boredom it uh, it's like a productive moment because it's like super intense mm. i don't know i'm kind of just bullshitting here but, but you should have brought it, you should write an essay called ontological boredom dude i would read that <laughs> yeah ontological boredom in the zoomer general ontological boredom in tiktok that'll yeah <laughs> that's got an seo written all over it yeah it's <laughs> A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent. But yeah, I mean, do you ever use TikTok? No, no. Other than you know, have you seeing it end up on Twitter? That's pretty much it. That's the only you've never scrolled through it. No. Okay. Well, first of all, don't because it will become an addiction because it is <laughs> it is it's unbelievable. But like because it's like fifteen seconds or sixty second vids max, right? Um, you you think like, oh, I'll just watch a couple, and then the next thing you know, you've watched 100, and after watching 100 15 to 60 second videos, you're like, oh shit, that's been almost an hour and a half that I've wasted or something like that, you know? Um, so it's uh, it's very addictive, and it's very clever in how it 
it, it's able to kind of pull you online. I don't remember what the exact number is, but it was something like the average log on time for TikTok from when they log on to the app to when they get off. The average time is over an hour. And I believe, oh, wow. I believe, I believe I heard it was two hours, but I don't know if I'm misremembering. But it's 100% over an hour. So that means that when people get on, the average that they spend on it is over an hour, right? Which <laughs> is pretty amazing to think about. So it's definitely done something interesting. But uh, but yeah, that's, man, I just am so like impressed. That's like the anti-dialectical with... activity there. Activity's got to have some process of like a beginning, middle, and an end to be satisfying ultimately, yeah. I think. <laughs> And I'm not sure that that can be purely volitional. Like you decide when the beginning, middle, and end is. It almost has to be organic somehow to the activity. I don't know. Maybe not. But doom scrolling yeah, seems like the ultimate example of why that's bad. Is that doom scrolling though? I mean, it's just like no, no. no. I mean, doom scrolling it, it is like the is like the pathological example. Like here's oh, what yeah, happens yeah, the yeah. worst. Doom scrolling yeah, happens on opposite. Twitter. Yeah. What's the yeah? What's the opposite of doom scrolling? That's what TikTok is. Uh, he, he yeah, that's actually he, he don scrolling. That's exactly what it is. It is he don. <laughs> it is. A, I was trying to think. I was like, is it like dopamine scrolling? Yeah, joy, joyful. Uh, yeah, it's something. Yeah, fucking. It's a hundred percent he don scrolling. Well, what, <laughs> what do you think is going to be the death knell of TikTok in like five years? So, so Facebook died when the boomers took over and then ruined it, right? And then yeah. Twitter is currently dying. Because it's, I mean, maybe this is just my experience, but it's just constantly people uh, yelling about politics. Um, Dude. And so that's how Twitter is going to die. It seems pretty clear. Like, it's like both engines exploded and the plane is yeah. currently in the nosedive. It's just we're waiting until it hits Earth. Um, so what's what's TikTok's downfall going to be in five years? Well, let's do this. Let's get, if we, I think we have to scrape beneath. What was the real cause of Facebook's death and then what is the kind of like the, the the logic of what is what you're identifying as twitter's slow death and then maybe we can learn that there's a pattern that somehow oh. it's going to dwindle right yeah, like one. facebook was super cool and like myspace myspace was super cool and what was the death of myspace right if we could find out what the actual cause and i've heard some people say like you know, you hear these tech guys that are like, oh, and when this happened, then MySpace died. But I don't ever really know if there's a single coherent, deep understanding of it. I I just don't know. I'm sure it's out there. I just am not familiar with it. Yeah, I don't but know. Yeah, maybe if we could do that, then we could understand. But it just seems right now that TikTok is still on the up and up. And especially with all these people oh, yeah. that are trapped in isolation in the West. I mean, even more people are logging on to TikTok. And... Dude, I did a Jordan Peterson video on my youtube channel and uh and you know i don't have like a ton of subscribers but still i did this video and it has like two thousand views after what a week and a half dude i did a 60 second tiktok kind of version of that same jordan peterson video it has like 9500 views in three days or four days Yeesh. so it's like five times the amount of views in half the time you know so the amount of eyeballs that are just kind of like on on that platform and the speed with which people can consume content is is something that is so unheard of, right? And of course, I can hear the kind of critical 
critical words even or the critical kind of critique that is even actually like based on what's coming out of my mouth it's like ah this is just turning us into these rapid consumer based thinkers right and it is it's transforming subjectivity itself to be these hedon hedonists right who are seeking um, these like flashes if you will of pleasure or flashes of kind of stimulation and I do have a problem with with those forms at a libidinal economic level but at the same time I don't know. I just, maybe this is where you can kind of repurpose the tools to see new flows and alternative flows that are, that are constitutive of different pathways to kind of changing who we are and how we connect and how we think. And I don't, I don't know. It yeah. Just, I mean, if, it, it, it's, yeah. if you're, if your solution to recognizing the pathological forms of social interactions that are given in your society is to withdraw from them completely and to never interact with them, yeah, then right. You're going to just go to a cabin in the woods. And even then, you're still going to be finding yourself somehow engaged in pathological social reality. So, yeah, we got to chill out a yeah. little bit and do your critical stance, right? But then also, you can go on TikTok. Come on, there's some good shit there. And the real good shit Dude. is the ones that actually recognizes the pathological form and repurposes it, as you're saying. Yes. I, I, I just, the weird thing is, I think most of the stuff that's on TikTok is good. That's the crazy thing right? That's what's amazing about it. Like fucking Twitter, most of it is just dire pleas for help <laughs> in a world that is, fuck- that is so it is, fucking man. sad, dude. <laughs> dude, it hurts my soul. I'm like, my God, everybody is fucking depressed and stressed out and burned out and angry and have like, you, it's fucking... Have you seen the... Yeah, do you have anybody you follow that posts the like RT to cleanse your timeline thing? And they'll post like a picture no. of a cute dog or... You know, some, oh yeah, some yeah, yeah. Being yeah, sweet. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's yeah. that's become a phenomenon now, where every day I get several of those from random people that I follow, and it's like, I bet mm. you everybody's experiencing this, and it's because everyone finds this experience of scrolling through Twitter to be awful, but they do it anyway, mm. and so they need some way to recover from all the pain and suffering they're inflicting on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going to the doctor's oh office gosh. and getting a lollipop at the end. Like you got to give them something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just got a fucking anal probe. So here you go. Here's a lollipop. Have a great day. Yeah. Fuck, man. I know, man. Yeah. So that's it. Fucking the Zoomers. They, uh, goddamn, they're so fucking creative. Let's give them some credit, man. And and here's the other, the last thing. There's the very last thing I want to say. Like it's real creativity. You know, it's real art. It isn't just, I think we denigrate it too. That's kind of the other point. Like we just think, oh, it's just these kids using the, no, it's like fucking really clever, you know? And you also get to see people who are like really witty and they're, they're using their humor to reach with people. Like it makes you really realize how fucking awesome and varied and capable human beings are. And I think that's fucking, I just think that's great. So, yeah. Yeah, it does make you think about if we had this kind of technology, but a a better a better like fundamental set of um, social bases of, to support it. How much? How much like? I'm trying to how much better the use of that technology would be, right? Like clearly, this shows that kids naturally want to be creative and make stuff and share it with each other and experience it and affirm other people's creations and then make their own and have this like feedback loop between each other um in the form of creativity and if you know we didn't have all the forms of of suffering that we inflict on ourselves socially 
this would be what life would be like. We just make shit all the time, and that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Oh wait, wait what, what was your what was your original me. formulation of this? The the um, utopian future is everybody has an OnlyFans account, and everybody else just spends all the rest of their time. <laughs> On everyone else's OnlyFans account, wasn't that it? Something like that. I'm. That's it, man. That's it, dude. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. OnlyFans, but without the nudes. Sorry, guys. It's that's not like, as fun. That's the Zizekian coffee without caffeine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Should we jump into this main segment here then? Let's do it, brother. All right, so you briefly talked about the video essay. Go to YouTube and check out uh, what's your channel called? Is it Austin Hayden? Is that just the name of the channel? Yeah, just 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 Austin Hayden. Yep. And you talked about briefly the um, the circumstances of the Georgia shooter um, at the beginning of the podcast here. So I would encourage everyone to go and watch that video first because we'll probably talk about um, it as if you've watched it and um, sort of already consumed the content. Uh, is there a specific way you wanted to get into this dude or specific things you wanted to uh, extrapolate on? I have some questions, but I don't want to jump into those too quickly. Well, we kind of talked about it at the outset. I think, you know, essentially my interest was was not to dismiss that anti-Asian hate or that misogynist violence are part and parcel of this crime. Also, I don't want to ignore um, mental health and I don't want to ignore debates around gun laws and access to guns and uh, I don't want to ignore those things those things are all constitutive they are all causal factors right but there was another dimension that I felt was just really getting um, only only snippets of attention and when it first happened I immediately latched onto that phrase that he was seeking to eliminate a source of temptation immediately that's what I latched onto. The, the, the moment that I heard about it, I was like, what the fuck, mm-hmm. right? Um, so then the fact that all these reports were coming out for the first few days that didn't even latch onto that at all, the only thing that they talked about was sex addiction, and that was something that was fed by one of the police officers, which to me is is a kind of ambiguous term. I think a lot of people still struggle with trying to understand what sex addiction might be, but I think it also it kind of diffuses some attention that I think needed to be focused more on that notion of eliminating temptation that was clearly tied to a Christ, a lot, some, something within Christianity. And yeah, so, so I, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was going to say, you know, you're, you're making kind of a, a bifurcation between the content of the phrase sources of temptation and the sex addiction claim, sex addiction claim. I don't know. Yeah. To me, I haven't delved into this story super deeply. So other than your video, that's pretty much all I've done to the you know, read headlines and see stuff on Twitter. But it seems yeah. like they're the same thing. Or they're referencing the same phenomenon. Obviously, one of them's, you know, extremely, or they're both extremely uh, euphemistic. But yeah. it seems to me like, and tell me what you think about this, um, sex addiction, that term is not being used in this discourse or by, clearly it seems like the the Georgia shooter himself mentioned this and that's why probably that the, um, the police chief uh, mentioned it in his, in his hearing. Right. Uh, yeah. or at least somehow it came up in conversation as a way to name the phenomenon that he was responding to. Right. But sex addiction, I mean, I don't know if like, yeah, 
what the medical um, sort of consensus is on on what sex addiction is. But I don't think that has anything to do with what's being talked about in this circumstance. Probably, maybe. I mean, mm. I don't know for sure. We'd have to, you know, get some psychiatrist to, you know, diagnose them or whatever. But at the very least, there's a strong possibility that this is not sex addiction, but what an evangelical might call sex addiction is just sex, <laughs> period. Mm. Like mm. being a sexual being is mm. to be sex addicted for certain mm. circles within evangelicalism. Having a sex drive yes. at all means you're addicted to sex. Like those two things mm. are equated in a lot of evangelical circles. Just the desire to have sex itself is wrong um, outside of marriage, right? And of course, it's yeah. not it's obviously not a biological reality. That's the kind of thing you can just turn off and then turn on as soon as you get married. Right? It's gonna be there. Hmm. And so when he said when they reference sources of temptation, I'm just thinking, this guy is just a normal dude who wants to have sex. Maybe he has a stronger hmm. drive than normal. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's addicted to sex in the way that the medical community might talk about it. It might mean that he just has incredible feelings of guilt and shame or when, or when normal sexual feelings that anybody has, but because he's in this evangelical circles and he's very committed and very devout. Right. And I think all the news stories mentioned that he was not just some like, you know, Easter Sunday Christian or something. He was a very committed yeah. Bible studies and church groups and stuff like that. It's the exact same thing that I think you and I both experienced a lot going through the church and going from evangelical college and that especially for boys and young men, all you talk about in small groups, 75% of what you talk about is that you're having unnatural, negative, sinful, impure thoughts about sex and women. Yeah. And that's every small group that's only boys is dominated by that discussion. And it's constantly reinforcing shame and guilt over having very natural feelings and that just yeah. becomes reinforced over and over and over again. You're told you're bad. You're told you're wrong for doing that. A lot of guys aren't very honest, but when you find someone who's very honest in those circles, I remember I had a friend at uh, church who's a little older than me, and I kind of saw him as kind of a, a little bit of a mentor to me because he was, uh, I thought he was very wise and forthcoming and was very humble in comparison to a lot of other people who were pretty self-righteous in that community. And he used to talk to me about um, how often he masturbated and mm. in like a really shameful way. And just, uh, yeah, I did it again last night. I went, you know, 27 days without it. And now I lost it. He was talking about like someone talks about sobriety in AA. Mm. It's almost the exact same phenomenon, um, or it's like structural, the same phenomenon. So I'm wondering is sex addiction as it's being used here, not the medical term, but instead yeah. the specific phenomenon that happens within evangelicalism, certain circles in evangelicalism, where there's this like dominance of shame and guilt over natural sexuality. Yeah, I like that. I think maybe that's what ruffled my feathers a little bit or what sent off the alarm bells when I heard the police officer say that immediately after, or immediately before he was saying he was seeking to eliminate ten- temptation. Um, it just became very apparent to me that, yeah, yeah, I think that that's exactly what it was is I don't know if we could speak of it in the same way that, you know, the psychological community has canonized it, but it's definitely this young man, it seems has, has used this terminology and this terminology is ultimately meant to describe this sense of shame and guilt that is fed by, uh, a perpetual repression 
and a guilt mechanism that is fed from the church. Yeah, I think I think that's right, man. And and what I talk about in the video is how this can produce a, a toxic shame, right? And it might not seem like a big issue to be like, oh well, what's a, what's wrong with being ashamed? But the problem is, is that when you have this, when you have this system, that one tells you that one, it creates a problem in the first place, something that shouldn't be a problem. That problem being, let's say, natural biological desire, or even let's say, um, a healthy social psychosexual desire. Right? We don't even have to naturalize it. But mm-hmm. that those things are healthy and that those things are part of social reality. But it takes it and it immediately turns it into a problem by calling it sin. So it's like, you know, when you have a conversation with someone and they tell you something like, man, I didn't even, I didn't know that I had a problem to begin with. And then they make it a problem. And then all of a sudden the light gets shined on it and you focus on it and you're like, fuck. You know, a lot of people actually talk about how they don't want to go to therapy because of that. They're like, I don't want to go to therapy because I don't want to realize that I don't want something to be turned into a problem that I didn't think was a problem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's, they don't want, they don't want the microscope or the magnifying glass illuminating this thing that they're like, fuck, because once it's on, once you pay attention to it, it's really hard to turn back, right? Like, I think this is one of the things that we don't often talk about with, with, with people who have gone through the evangelical experience that I have felt very potently is that I can't go back from my experience of having the magnifying glass turned on me by the Christian lens. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can only go through. It's it's Alice going down the fucking hole, man. I can only keep going. And this is why philosophy and this is why other uh, forms of religious um, practice, and this is why other types of political engagement and, and social activities have been necessary for me because they are the things that are pulling me further and down, further and further down a, um, a path that was opened by this tear that was caused by uh, a certain experience. Maybe it was a traumatic experience, whatever, with with Christianity, right? And so you can't go back. The problem is, is how do you go down the rabbit hole, right? Like what are the resources that guide you? And if those resources are the ones that only exacerbate that shame, then that's when it turns into a toxic shame. And that's when it turns into a system that perpetually tells you how bad you are and feeds further and further into this shame that then drives you deeper and deeper or plunges you deeper and deeper into guilt or depression or hopelessness, or something along those lines. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, that that talk, the toxicity of that shame and guilt spiral that gets produced, you know, one way out of it is just to have resources external to that community that can shine a light on yeah. its pathological effect and can try to convince you to get out of it or to see things from a different perspective. And that takes a long ass time to happen. I mean, I think for us, it took years of slowly progressing out of that. And we also, we have to mention, you know, it's funny that um, there was always this at our college, which was very, very um, not fundamentalistic in the sense that like early 20th century fundamentals, uh, fundamentalists were a specific like denomination of Christians, but it was was what most people would think of as being fundamentalist. Um, Yeah. And there was a debate about, you know, should we ever allow 
reading of secular books in classes, listening to <laughs> secular music, stuff like that, right? And the cool professors at the college were the ones who were like, no, we've taught our students discretion. Um, and so we can give them these resources and they can they can actually independently, um, through a Christological lens, analyze it and not be tempted away from it, right? And then the, the uncool profs are the ones who are like, no, it's, it's too mm. tempting. The world's too strong. Um, just focus only on the Christian stuff, right? And the funny thing yeah. is, I think the uncool profs were right just in terms of predictive uh, predictions because like when you do get access to them with some of that stuff it it can be convincing it takes a long time but it can eventually convince you oh the things that i thought before were actually totally wrong um and then you can be let out of that uh so the, the uncool props were actually um wolves in sheep's clothing is what i or the cool props were wolves in sheep's clothing is what i'm going to say although it's unconscious <laughs> i think um okay that aside the toxicity of that shame in its worst guise can lead directly towards the objectification of, of women, which we probably are seeing here, right? It's possible yeah. he had some like intense positive hatred of women and or um, Asian people or Asian women specifically. I don't, we don't know, right? But it's certainly possible that it largely comes from the negative side, like indifference, like such inc- like uh, intense indifference such that you don't even care that the person dies. And so if they are a obstacle to something that you want or need, you're totally indifferent to um, how your actions affect them to the point where you could even mm. kill them and not and feel like you were justified in doing so, right? Like indifference can be that intense, I think, without being overwhelmingly a positive hatred. There's probably some, you know, collapsing between the distinctions we need to make, right? But there's probably degrees also we can talk about there. Um, so it could be the yeah. case that you're talking about an intense indifference that comes from this like toxic shame spiral thing. When you are constantly only talking about women, especially those who are your contemporaries, like your age, people who you have sexual attraction to, you're only ever talking about them, especially in your deepest conversations, yeah. as being not necessarily consciously the cause sources of, the of temptation, but the sources of it. Yeah, they are yeah, objects. Yeah. They are things causing yeah. you to feel a certain way and not people in and yeah. of themselves who have deep inner lives and you know cares and life projects and loves That's and right. um, all that kind of stuff. And so you're never talking about that important you know depth stuff. You're only ever talking about the th- way that they cause you to feel. That's what we, how we talk about objects. Yes. And so you're going to naturally be led towards objectifying them. And that can lead towards that kind of indifference. There's a direct line, I would think, between the stuff we're talking about about how evangelicalism talks about sexuality and this objectification um, of of women that can happen. It doesn't have to end up that way. It certainly doesn't have to end up with you know, killing people. Um, but there's still, I think, a you know a weak causal line at the very least between those things. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And so one of the things that I talk about in the video is is that process of objectification, and then fold it into that is the it's not just an object but it's a particular kind of object which is a sexual object right and for some reason the evangelical church let's say the protestant church in particular i mean maybe the catholic church is too but definitely the protestant church and and in my experience the the evangelical church they are far more obsessed with like sexual temptation and sexual sin than many others right it's as Troy said, when you're in a men's group, it's pretty much all you talk about. 
You know, how's 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 your how's how's your struggle with lusts? You know, how's your relationship with your girl? Or are you guys staying pure? Are you staying clean? It is constantly on your mind. We live on a campus where they separate guys and girls from each other. You know, um, I don't remember. I think I remember the university, but I don't want to say it because I don't want to kind of like denigrate or or libel. But I think I remembered that there was like some university in the states where they went so far as having like paths that only men could walk on or boys could walk on and other paths that were like the girl paths. Do you remember hearing about that? Was that real? Um, maybe. Vaguely remember yeah, something where it like was, that. Where it was like you've got the men dorms and then the women dorms and then there was like the paths that this is like the man path and this is like the woman path so that when you're going to chapel or whatever. But the point is, is that there's such an extreme separation. There's such an extreme... Um, othering of these two that it makes it really difficult to relate to one another. And so I think it actually forms really unhealthy patterns of connection. And to be honest, like I still deal, you know, I'm in my mid thirties and I've been out of the evangelical church for, I don't know, 10 years, you know, and, and I still, maybe more, 12 years, um, and I still, I still deal with what I would call like the hangover from these guilt and shame mechanisms around sexuality, you know, like it's still, it's still there. Um, it, it doesn't go away. It's one of the, the reasons why, um, Tantra has been so valuable to me. Most people think of it as just being like a sexual practice. It's it's not. It's much richer. You know, we've talked about it before on the podcast. It's a, it's a meditative practice. It's a kind of a an entire spiritual practice. But but in its sexual forms, one of the things that it does is it really does allow us to kind of deal with these these feelings of shame that aren't just particular to evangelicalism and to Christians too, right? That's something we need to say. There's there are unhealthy forms of relating to sexual desire outside of it as well. But one of the things that this has kind of taught me to explore are the kind of like beautiful and affirmative forms of sexuality and sexual desire. But it's still there, man. It still lingers and it gets in there because it's super, super deep because it is just the thing that the church seems to be more obsessed with. And and I've heard, I've heard them say because it's like a sin against the body and so I've heard them say that it, it gets in there and it's deeper, but I've never really, I remember I asked, I was like, why is that the one that you focus so much on? And I never got like a satisfactory answer. It was always some like non-biblical answer or some sort of like interpretive answer that was kind of, that was just like sort of circular and self-reinforcing. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of curious, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it says a lot about the fact that that's so heavily focused on uh, in contrast to all the many other possible sins <laughs> and their religion, right? Yeah. That you could focus on. And, you know, I yeah. think um, liberals will probably move straight towards the like, well, it's a, it's a form of controlling women. That's why it's so focused yeah. on. It's, it's meant to create a hierarchy and reinforce the hierarchy through these sex distinctions. And that's obviously, I think, partially true. But it doesn't seem to me like that's the whole game, um, mm. at least just purely the controlling women thing, which is obviously a part of it. Um, it's no surprise those that people who treat sex um, as sacred in that specific kind of way also 
hold to you know very distinct gender hierarchies. Um, but at the same time, there's something more going on there about um, how to think about yourself, how to view yourself, whether you're to view yourself as a source of value that should be respected, in addition to how you would think about women, right? Um, and so I think there's, there's, I don't know what to think about it exactly. I'm just kind of riffing here, but it seems like there's a lot more going on with that intense focus on sex as a marker mm. of who you are as a person, right? We use the terms purity and impurity to refer to it. And that's like deeply rooted senses of disgust, like the kind of reactions mm. that we have that unfortunately inform our moral concepts, right? Are very intimately tied into our moral and value concepts, uh, disgust. Mm. Um, the fact that purity and disgust becomes uh, this huge part of it, like that's that's everything about who's to be affirmed in society and who's not and how you're supposed to think about yourself mm. and how you're supposed to think about others and judge them as good or bad, valuable and un- invaluable, worthy or unworthy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there's a, like a much larger moral substructure to these things, I think. Do you think it's as easy as saying that and I don't want to be too reductive, but as humans here, the the urge to procreate, the libidinal urge is so foundational to what we are in these bodies that it's just so present. And that's why they focus on it so much because it's the one, like, you're not always angry, right? So when Jesus says, if you've, you know, if there's anger in your heart, then you've committed murder against your neighbor kind of thing. People are like, yeah, 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 but I don't I don't often get angry. But, you know, when that asshole cuts me off on the freeway, I can chill out a little bit. You know, I don't have to fucking freak out and go full on Dennis from It's Always Sunny on him, <laughs> right? Seize the gap, you fucking bitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't have to go that crazy, right? Because, you know, that's a very rare thing. Whereas, like, that fucking libidinal desire literally is what wakes you up in the morning, you know? And what drives you through your day. And it doesn't always manifest as what we call sexual desire. It could be a creative impulse, right? It could be something that kind of expresses itself in different ways. But there's something about libido and it just fucking seems to be ever-present. And so maybe it's just fundamentally this, that there's like a warring against what it means to be an embodied person. And a lot of people have written about this, right? That Christianity is fundamentally nihilistic. This would be Nietzsche's critique. Right? Is that it rejects this world, it rejects the bodies of this world, it rejects life, nature, and history, it rejects the foundational realities of embodied existence. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people have also written about this, like feminist scholars have written about this as well. But it does seem that there's like just a fundamental rejection of the body, right? In all of its variations sexual desire, but also a rejection of the feminine body as being something that is unique and valuable and worth its own um, its own praise, if you will. And and so I wonder if there's, is that too reductive to think along those lines? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it is reductive to a certain degree. Um, and there's probably different degrees in different contexts to which it's applicable, right? So like it may be more applicable to how women's bodies are viewed in mm. in Christian circles or in evangelical circles in America during this era, right? probably more applicable to that than to uh, male bodies, right? Because I can think of, I think, you know, there's there's certain degrees to which Nietzsche is right about Christianity being nihilistic, 
There's certain degrees in which it's not. I had experiences in the church that I think were very um, life-affirming. Uh, they were, you know, surrounded by a whole lot of nihilism as well, right? Um, and mixed in with that stuff in, in a way that it's, it's difficult to tease out what was actually affirming and what was not. But there's, you know, I think it's just really, it's constricting ultimately, right? It's, it's sort of picking out a couple of different good things. And then in order to support those good things, just surrounding it with the most restrictive, um, you know, social structure you can think of to support those good things. So, mm. I mean, think about music in the church, for instance. Like in some circles, it's, you know, shitty um, youth group music. And so there's no, there's no thoughts at all towards affirming the musical abilities of people, right? Um, but I think some churches actually really have a sense in which, you know, they value music um, and just like the sort of the quality of, of hearing things that are um, considered to be good in and of themselves, right? Just because they, mm. the hearing experience itself is pleasant and that's good. And they have a weird way of justifying it, right? Because it's like this indirect sense in which it praises God because God gave you the skills that you're now expressing or whatever, right? But I think most people take that as a first order, in a first order sense as this is just natural. This is just like good in and of itself, which is good. And that's, you know, life affirming, I think. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Uh, there's probably a lot more of the, the nihilism than there is the not in some of these, you know, yeah. in, the, the, in the most pathological forms. But there's always, I think, if there was nothing good it, in it at all, then, then it wouldn't work. It wouldn't have any staying power. So there's got to be something yeah. good at recognizing that's keeping, it's keeping people going a little bit, right? It's not pure self-delusion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, it's, it's also curious because you, you get people that will praise like what the body is capable of doing, right? They'll be like, oh my God, isn't it amazing that we can play sports? And they're like, God is so amazing because he's made our bodies that can function in these ways. But there doesn't seem to be the same level of praise that is bestowed upon like sexual desire, which is an amazing fucking capacity, right? <laughs> Just think about the, the nerve endings and the feelings and the connection. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing thing that our bodies are capable of doing. And I remember hearing lots of stories from uh, from counselors and things like that about a lot of women in particular dealt with this because they were told for so long, no, 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 no. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Sex is evil. Don't, 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 don't. And then how they had a really difficult time after marriage from really learning to enjoy their sexual relation with their partner. And it's because you know, 20 plus years of conditioning isn't so easily reversed in a night just because a guy in a collar says, I now pronounce you husband and wife sort of thing, right? And um, it is just kind of, I, I think it's kind of important to think in those terms about um, about how there is something beautiful about this aspect that we don't have to think about. Like even I think in like secular discourse, we don't really think about it that often, right? We talk about how we do it because it feels good or it's fun or it's great. Fuck it, I've got the freedom. But to really then marvel at it as a capacity, as something we can do in the same way that we marvel at LeBron James for being able to dunk a basketball, mm. right? There is something amazing about our bodies doing this thing 
and uh, and yeah, I I feel like that's that's a one of the ways that we can kind of reorient ourselves to the sexual body and reorient ourselves to sexual desire. Is think about it in that sense. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if you were to bring that up in a youth group meeting or whatever, like, why don't we talk about if we really think that sex is good, just in certain um, contexts, then why don't we like talk about it? Like, you know, Song of Solomon it or whatever, right? And you'll you'll hear people make this reference to, you know, Song of Solomon's yeah, about yeah. the the beauty of, of sex or sexual relations and stuff like that. And then the obvious retort will be, well, if we do that, it will be a source of temptation for people because many people don't have the proper context to do that, can't acquire that context at a moment's notice. And so they'll be led by those, you know, rapturous descriptions of its beauty to doing it in an improper uh-huh. context. And it's like, imagine if we talked about everything else like that, <laughs> um, mm. like music. Yeah, I mean, music is great because it it uh, exhibits the glory of God that he would create people with these um, special skills and, and stuff like that, that he's helped them hone or whatever. But then we can't talk about how great that is really, right? We can't have public displays of music because people will start liking music for its own sake and not because it's something that God gives us and they'll become addicted to music and then Mm. constantly spend their time listening to it and getting into rhythms and moving their body along with the rhythms without really thinking about it. This is actually a critique you hear sometimes at our church. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but um, the high church part of it was very against the idea of having drums or any sort of rhythm section in music because that sort of, um, create this, it sort of, it uses your body unconsciously and makes your body do mm. things in a way that's not contemplative. Whereas high music, high church music is, it activates the contemplative part of you. And that's the part where mm. you can actually give glory to God in your experience. Uh, incredibly ridiculous. Right? Um, yeah. There's some a, strange music, the music theory. <laughs> yeah. I want to know what the music theory is there behind that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was even some racist stuff. There. I remember people talking about how uh, they said like percussion that came from African tribal uh, religions, which were inherently satanic because they would be using the rhythms to, Jesus. to you know, summon um, demon spirits and stuff. So not, not, not everyone believed that, obviously, but there were, I, I've heard that several times from people. So, but yeah, obviously we wouldn't talk about music that way. That's ridiculous. We can't have public displays of music because people will become addicted to it and start listening to it for its own sake rather than giving glory to God. Like, that's ridiculous, right? But that's exactly how they talk about, about sex. Yeah, it's an inherently good thing, but we can't talk about that because it will be a source of temptation. You know, it's crazy. You and I spent quite a bit of time in the church. I mean, we were both on the path to becoming pastors, theologians, etc. How many... Sermons did you ever hear, or Bible studies series did you ever hear about Song of Solomon? How many? How often? <laughs> How often did you walk into church and you got the program and the pastor was going to be talking about Sol- Song of Solomon? How often did that happen? I mean, mostly like, just jokes. That was the only time you ever really heard it referenced, right? Ah, uh, I bet you. I bet you the I, married the the couples groups did it. Yeah, exactly. I bet you're right. Or when you were like reading through the Bible, right? Like I know some churches, if they do like um, like a Bible study in the morning and then they do a service at night or like in the night service, they're going through the Bible. But in the morning service, they're kind of doing like book by book or something like that. But the evangelical church, one, overemphasizes the New Testament to the neglect of the Old Testament, right? 
but also focuses a lot on it's, it, de- it depends on the the variant but in the reformed circles they also focus heavily on the pauline epistles to the neglect of the gospels whereas the sort of more calvary chapel um the more seeker friendly they focus a lot more on the words of jesus than on the theology of paul so but and then even when you do dip into the old testament it's like usually the prophets and sometimes they'll go into historical stuff but but stuff like poetry and the psalms and the proverbs are explored ecclesiastes because that makes you just think that oh the world is shit and that that's good for christians to kind of fuel them up to teach them why they need grace i guess and then song of solomon really gets short shrift you know like just not much or it gets somebody like mark driscoll who talks about how cool it is to give blowjobs on stage and then he gets like canceled because i think he got canceled for that a few times so yeah so i'm wondering what's where's mark driscoll in this in this sphere that we're analyzing, <laughs> right? is he the like the like the manifestation of what happens when you try to be sex affirming within the yeah. evangelical sphere? It just comes but did, out did he have to be like so pathological ways? Yeah, did he have to be so duty and laddie about it? That's the problem. It was it was just so coarse for a lot of people, and I didn't mind it, right? Because I kind of grew up in a split world where I was one foot in the church, one foot out of the church. But if you were like a homeschooled, hardcore, churchified person and you listen to Mark Driscoll, you would be like, <gasps> I can't believe it. The offensive things he says. He said the word blowjob on stage or whatever the fuck he said, you know? <laughs> or he's talking about oral sex. You can't talk about oral sex in front of a group of 20-year-olds because just by mentioning the word will make them start doing it in the aisles right now in the <laughs> service. While they're listening to their satanic drum music. Ah! <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> no joke, though. I mean, obviously, Mark Driscoll, there, there are issues there, right? Um, but that was honestly, that when that debate came about, that was positive to a large degree. Yeah. You know, whether his intentions were good in that, I mean, I don't know. Probably not. Who can, like, I don't really care. Um, but that was honestly like a breath of fresh air, a little bit of relief because – when you really got down to brass tacks, people would have to admit, yeah, of course, sex is good. And where we affirm that it's good. And that's a biblical position. We just can't talk about it. And that that is just not a convincing argument at all, since it's not applied to any other sphere in life. So something else is going on here. And when Mark Driscoll like follows through on that logic, or we're going to talk about sex the same way we talk about music and sports and whatever other you know social sphere of life that we think that is biblically to be affirmed, um, it's like it rocks your world a little bit. And that was, I think, probably pretty good to have that discussion. I mean, I don't know if the outcomes were good or if it achieved anything. Probably not. But I think for a lot of people, that was probably a positive experience. Yeah, I've got a friend who she runs a website. If people are interesting, it's called Confident Lovers. And she's the one who introduced me to Tantra, you know, like seven years ago or whatever it was. And um, her whole mission in life, like essentially she... She had a relationship with an older man when she was in her 20s, and this older man introduced her to the power of the orgasm and introduced her to forms of sexuality that she'd never experienced in her 20s because she's only she'd only dated like 20-year-old dudes who watched porn, and that was where they got their sex education from, right? And so she had this amazing relationship with this older man who introduced her to like deep spiritual connection and tantra and stuff like that, and it showed her a completely different way of 
understanding her body, understanding her partner's body, understanding sexual desire, and all kinds of other things related to this. And so her whole life's mission now, hence the website, is to provide resources to people for people to be able to explore sexuality in in very different ways, healthier ways, ways without shame. And what she also does is she goes to high schools. And this is the crazy thing is she teaches not safe sex, but she teaches good sex, right? She teaches healthy sex to teenagers. And I think this is something that's extremely important. You know, there are certain things that we think that are like taboo that like if you talk about it, you're going to manifest it. Or if you talk about it, then you're going to manifest it in a bad way. Like suicide, right? Like when someone is having suicidal thoughts, oftentimes people tiptoe around it and they don't want to say directly. But apparently all of the studies show that actually no, Mm -hmm. if you talk about it directly and say, are you thinking about it right now? Do you have something at home? Do you have a plan on how you're going to do it? Do you know when you're going to do it? If you ask those questions, that doesn't like – push them over the edge it actually does the opposite right it's almost like human beings are like you know inherently rational and can (laughs) yeah capable reflect on things things and think about things yeah not automatons who react to whatever idea popped into their head exactly and if you come at people with that with that respect that a person is capable as a human, I think that's one of the big things. And maybe the issue of sexuality fundamentally does not respect the capability of the human because the human is fallen. The human is sinful. And therefore, like Satan will get you. And at any moment, it just takes one word or one image and that's going to tip you over the edge. And then all of a sudden you're going to become some sort of freak or something like that. And uh, yeah, I think I think... I think it's really important that we retrain our young people and retrain our older people on how to kind of orient ourselves to sexuality in different ways that wouldn't be rooted in these systems of guilt and shame and things like that. So so if you're listening to this too and you're looking for resources, you're curious, this sounds like, fuck yeah, I had a similar experience, um, confidentlovers.com. Check it out. Uh, I believe I posted a link to it. On the video, the Georgia shooting video, I think I did because there's a, an essay on Tantra. Um, I definitely did on my last video on meditation. I posted a link to it. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's a really, I think, good little resource, you know. Um, take it with a grain of salt. Not everything is obviously perfect. And people are going to say stuff on there that you might be kind of like, oh, it's a little cheesy or whatever. Whatever, you know. It's just another resource to have that might kind of introduce you to different ways that you can explore sexuality and and what I think is a non-guilt-ridden, a non-guilt-ridden or non-shameful way. So, yeah. And it's interesting you talk about um, respecting the, I mean, I would call it the rational capacity of individuals. Um, not that they're entirely rational or only rational, but they have that capacity, right? And um, to reflect on things and to think about it and to not be an automaton who just, you know, does whatever happens to be in their head. We're seeing that same thing happen right now with the little Nas X thing. Have you heard about this uh, this little uh, event that's happening in the culture right now? No. What's up? So I guess I haven't seen it, but little Nas X, you know the old um, old town country road, whatever that song was last year. Yeah, he did it. He has a new video out, and I guess he's like, it's like lots of depictions of Satan and stuff in it. Um, and okay. so that you know brought up some. Some issues like satanic panic type stuff from some of the oh yeah I did hear about this on the Twitter sphere yeah, on yeah okay I did hear about this but I didn't I didn't delve into it so keep going yeah what's up 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not super familiar with what I haven't seen the video or really read much about it. I don't really care too much. But it seems like the same phenomenon where, and this obviously happened in the 80s, right? The big satanic panic and all the worries of the PMRC, uh, Tipper Gore trying to uh, put the yeah. parental advisory stickers on and albums and stuff, all falling from this logic of if we allow this or affirm this in the culture, um, then it will... Uh, naturally have the effect that people will do it. They won't be reflective. They won't be discerning. They'll just do it, right? And what's great, I think actually a, a good sign now about the culture, one of the few good signs about culture of progression, cultural progression for us in America is this is all just laughed off now. Like, you know, f- 550,000 people have died of COVID in the last year. And do you think the, the big problem right now is that there's a music video that has hilarious depictions of Satan in it. It's like, clearly nobody thinks this is a problem. <laughs> this is just somebody trying to reach for something to yell about, right? And so the fact that that, that kind of thinking is just dead on delivery, right, I think is probably mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, well, probably almost nobody uh, our age and younger is going to find anything of value in that sort of argument. Um, and that, I think, is at least in part because it's just, you know, common thinking that, no, individuals are, you know, rational, um, reflective, uh, capable people. And so they can think about the artistic value of whatever little Nas X is doing and not start murdering babies and sacrificing them to to Satan. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did hear about this. I think Wisecrack did a podcast on their culture binge on the satanic panic. Um, and that's the only reason I know about it. And I saw some TikTok, another way that I am tuned in to what's going on in culture, my friends. Uh, some guy was like reacting to the video, but I didn't quite get it because I just kind of scrolled quickly and I didn't really know what the imagery was. I just saw some like imagery of him shirtless, like sliding down what looked like a stripper pole, but down like like many dimensions. So maybe he was like going down into hell. Is that what it was? I don't know. I don't know. I was in the video. You know what they need to do is they need to have like reaction videos. You know how they have like boomers like like watching. They need to have like millennials watching like current cutting edge uh, fucking pop culture stuff like me. Like somebody who's like, what? What is this? Like, <laughs> like I don't qu- I don't get it. Explain it to me because it would it would still be like I don't get it. But at the same time, it would be a very different reaction than some boomer that's like, ah, these damn young kids. You know, it'd be more like, oh, my God, you guys are wild. <laughs> 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 like like you're taking the door that we opened and you're fucking like blasting a hole through the fucking wall like good good for you but you guys freaked me out a little bit <laughs> oh jesus well how about some some final thoughts here man what do you what do you think i don't know i think it's interesting that um we're gonna do my sticky leaves here in a minute but all three of the segments of this episode through no conscious intention of, of mine or yours are going to surround various aspects of evangelicalism um, in the past and how that past has in its own unique way affected the current state of things, whether for good or for ill. Um, and that's interesting because there's, it seems to me like in the wider culture, there's not as much, the only reference to evangelicalism you'll even see is in relation to Trump. Like that's it. It's only cultural mm-hmm. force is in the Trump phenomenon. And that's in dire contrast to the way evangelicalism dominated culture when we were growing up. Um, not the only force, yeah. but one of the largest, if not the largest, cultural force in the country. And it's waning 
is interesting. I think I saw a, a study the other day that church attendance in America was about 70 to 75 percent, um, give or take a few percentage points from 1950 until 1990 or so. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's, it's slowly dropped after that. And then after 2008 has plummeted. Now it's below 50 percent. Wow. Um, and that's really interesting. To think about interesting the, correlation there, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's any surprise at all that I mean, it's a combination of factors, mm. right? It's not just the financial crash; it's also the ubiquity of internet access and you know, all sorts of stuff. That's kind of a combination of factors, right? But it does seem like we're looking at the winning of this major cultural force, and I think obviously um, the death knell of that was likely the Trump phenomenon, but it's not dead yet, and there's going to be more and more stuff like this that probably happens as um, those who once saw this cultural force as the dominant one in the country now deal with relative obscurity and lack of cultural impact. And people have talked about that a lot, I think, but um, it is an interesting frame on some of these discussions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. And then, of course, I'm also interested in the ways in which just certain secular worlds, systems, or forms of thought have also been influenced by Christian thought or have been influenced by evangelical thought or have been influenced by Protestantism or even Catholicism in, in other countries and maybe even in certain parts of the United States. So I'm also interested in that because I don't think that there is a simple bifurcation between the secular and the religious. So a lot of a lot of the Western world just is... Um, Christianized, so to speak. And I think that it seeps in in other ways, you know, um, maybe more subtle ways, ways that are even more foundationally constitutive of what this thing that we call Christianity is in the first place. And so I think those are interesting investigations to have, which is kind of what we did, I think, when we were looking at the Dan Barber book, you know, when we did that mm -hmm. series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, that's kind of what I really get tuned into and really, and really find fascinating to think through and explore further and yeah, and it's hard because it's quite of a, a speculative project. Um, but, but yeah, I, I definitely think that there's value in that. So, but anyway, um, yeah, let's go ahead and close up the main segment there, and let's jump into the sticky leaves where we hear about something good and positive that is giving us meaning in the world. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is the final segment of the episode. It is the Sticky Leaves, where one of us gets to share something that is giving us meaning in a world that is potentially devoid of meaning. Troy, you have drawn the straw. So what is giving you meaning today, dude? So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, this Sticky Leaves is also going to tangentially be about evangelicalism. There are no plan of, of mine. Uh, I had this you know, figured out before we even decided on this episode topic and certainly didn't and know. And you didn't tell me ahead of time, so it's not like we coordinated in any way. I didn't know. Yeah, not at all. Um, this is live here, people. I'm, I'm <laughs> learning about this live in the moment. Fuck it, always. do it live. <laughs> so I last week tweeted out a video of a house show that The Chariot did um, oh. a number of years ago. I think even the, the video itself was from 10 or so years ago. I think the, maybe it was taken in like the mid-2000s. And it got me thinking, you know, and this is going to be a positive thing about 
about Christianity. We're so we're gonna you know back up some of the negative criticisms with something positive, right? We're we're yeah. we're friends here, right? We don't just want to bash on people. I'm with um, you. So a little background here: Christian contemporary music (CCM) is shit, right? Everybody everybody thinks this. Um, even even Christians. Uh, especially, especially the more fundamentalist ones, right? Will be like, yeah. this isn't even good. It's just a parody of secular music, right? Yeah, and uh, a bad, so, a bad parody at that. Yeah, it's like it, it's an unconscious parody, which is the worst kind of parody, right? It means it just sucks. Uh, it's just like copying, like mimicry, basically, right? It's not even thoughtful. Uh, so even Christians tend to recognize that CCM sucks, and you can come up with copious examples of that, right? Um, and almost every new subgenre that appears and becomes popular with the youth of the time ends up spawning some, you know, Christians who will emulate or mimic that form. And it sucks. Pop punk had that right there was like skillet and stuff. Um, there were a number of ska bands during the ska revival in the nineties, which actually weren't terrible, like OC Supertones and five hour and frenzy and stuff. Um, they weren't oh, yeah. terrible, but that's like the exception to the rule. Right. Um, Obviously, when new metal was big in the late '90s, early 2000s, there were a number of terrible new metal bands uh, in the Christian sphere, like Demon Hunter. Um, Pod, weren't they Christian? Yeah, yeah, damn Pod. Was it? Um, wouldn't that stand for like paid on death? Payable on death. Yeah. Payable on death. Yeah. <laughs> so, this was a phenomenon that happened because it was monetizable, right? I think um, who was the the chick from Evanescence? Amy something, right? Mm. Um, she even mentioned one time in an interview, I think, that she's like, I mean, we're not really a Christian band at all, but you got to understand when you're coming up and you don't have anywhere to play and no one's going to pay you money and you're starving, <laughs> if you just say you're a Christian band or somehow hint that you are, you now have all of these new venues who will get 500 people to come to your show, right? N- never having mm. heard your music or having any interest in your music just because you're associated with this fear. So if you're coming mm. up, it's really advantageous to do this. And you're not lying. Like you go to church or you have friends who are in the church or whatever. Like you're nominally a Christian, but you don't have any intention for your band to be a Christian band. But it's really enticing to do that. I think it was her that was talking about that in an interview one time a, long, a while ago. So it makes sense that this would be a monetizable phenomenon that people will latch onto, right? There's an audience for this stuff. The same thing with these terrible movies like Fireproof or whatever that are... <laughs> uh, coming out purely for a Christian audience and that are really ham-fisted, right? Um, yeah. Okay, all that aside, it's almost always the case that these you know new subgenres come out, a Christian um, mimic follows it, and it's an unconscious parody and it's terrible. But the one major exception to that is the early hard or the hardcore scene of the early 2000s. Christian bands or Christian-associated bands actually were at the forefront. They were the ones making the subgenre and so i'm thinking specifically here i mean i think technically it'd be metalcore it's a term used for it so it's the fusion of hardcore and metal and there were Mm. bands like the chariots a a really good example of that the lead singer from the chariot was previously in norma jean and they were a fantastic metalcore band who i loved and it's funny because you could talk about people i talk to people who are metalcore or hardcore heads and they'll reference norma jean the chariot as being great bands and at the forefront of that burgeoning scene 
um, in the early 2000s. And they'll say something like, it's kind of the opposite of what Christians would say about secular bands. It's like, yeah, they're Christian, but I don't listen to the lyrics. <laughs> in the same way, if you were a Christian, you would say your favorite secular band. Yeah, I know they're secular and their lyrics are about sex and stuff, but I just like the music. I don't listen to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they say the same thing about them. And there was like Zayo. They were a great metalcore band, Living Sacrifice, Blindside, Shy Hulud. They were more on the hardcore side. Um, but they were at the forefront of that. I'm trying to think, like, why is that? What is it specifically about hardcore and metalcore in the late 90s, early 2000s that allowed Christians to be on the vanguard of it in a way that in every other sphere, they were just, you know, mimics that came afterwards to monetize Mm. for a specific audience? Like, what's special about metalcore that this was how, or was it just a coincidence? Mm. Do you have any thoughts about that? God, I don't. I don't. I don't. I wonder. Yeah, there's got to be something, right? Yeah, I mean, my. I was thinking about it the other day when I was thinking about doing this for Sticky Leaves. And the only thing, only thing I could come up with without, you know, doing anything sociological, which you would do if you're a responsible academic, <laughs> is, is to think of something about, you know, hardcore in the 90s had this sense of you know the metalheads smoke pot and are cool but the hardcore kids will fuck you up right that was the difference between hardcore kids and metalheads metalheads just want to hang out and listen to metal and get high right but hardcore kids they want to like they want to go to the show and they want to slam dance and they want to fuck you up right like they're dicks yeah. um and so something about this um passionate hardcore melodic hardcore metalcore scene that i'm talking about that kind of came to the fore in the late 90s, early 2000s, it fused hardcore and metal and what, and a lot of those bands like Under Oath eventually became kind of like emo bands and screamo bands mm-hmm. because they had this kind of inner passion, intensity, emotional side that they used hardcore and metal to express as its form to express it, right? And it seems to me like maybe, maybe, these Christian groups were able to do that because there was something affirmative in, in some evangelical circles about emotions, because something that, you know, Mm. evangelicals do, and especially with men is you can talk about Mm. your emotions. Uh, It's not always a very healthy discussion about the emotions It's often unhealthy as we've been talking about in this episode. Right. Um, But you do it. But a lot of emo music is unhealthy expression of dude emotions anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like so, even secular, even secular. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that I think that's, that's like, there's a consonance there. So maybe this idea of, you know, it's, it's okay to be manly and talk about your weaknesses and your emotions and your, um, you know, passive affections. You don't have to be the cool James Dean sunglasses inside. Don't talk to anybody. I don't need anybody mm. kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know if hardcore, early hardcore embodied that at all. Probably not. I think it was more simple than that. But it definitely had a manly, you know, like macho aesthetic to it, right? Yeah. Uh, And so maybe Christians were able to see the weakness of that and provide this emotional expression part of it that allowed them to be at the forefront and really lead in large parts this scene. Um, Yeah, I don't know. that, That might just be... Um, too simple of an explanation, but I, I wonder if that was part of it. 
So are you saying that hardcore music, Christian hardcore music, is like the uh, artistic and physical manifestation of the Christian, the male Christian's inner state? <laughs> Just fucking... <laughs> Dude, it, it was for me. I mean, <laughs> I loved metal, right? And I was also like a really devout Christian. And so, yeah. and, and certainly felt like it was a positive thing that, um, that, Christianity was was sort of encouraged men to talk about their feelings, their emotions, their values, their weaknesses, and stuff like that, and to do it publicly with other men uh, in a way that affirmed that you can be masculine and do that, and it's actually brave and courageous to do that. Um, and that was a, that was a positive thing, and it's you know not entirely the outcomes are not entirely positive, but they're partially positive. And so yeah, for me it was like, but I also love metal and love physical expression and you know um, mosh pits and you know going crazy to music and stuff like that. And this was the only available avenue for that because there were hardcore bands like Hatebreed and stuff like that, but they they weren't very good. Um, and they certainly didn't have uh, that sense. They had like anger, but they didn't have any complex emotions. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, and some of that stuff uh, like Under Oath, I'm not a huge fan of anymore. I think that's um, moving more towards some of the unhealthy versions of emo and screamo that we're talking about. But stuff like Norma Jean, I can put that shit on the chariot. Oh. I can put that shit on today and it's awesome. Yes. <laughs> It's complex. Dude, I still listen to blue, Blueprints for Future Homes. That's from Norma Jean. Like, that's one of my favorite songs, man. Yeah, dude. I think it's on the album Redeemer, which is when they got the new singer, which wasn't the Chariot singer, because wasn't the Chariot singer the original Norma Jean singer? Yeah, he was on that Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child, or whatever it's called, which is like one of the greatest, one of the great medical albums of all time, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. But I, for some reason, got really into Redeemer, which is the one with like the crow, like pecking the person's head on the album cover. Mm -hmm. And it's the second song. I think it's called Blueprint for Future Homes. Dude, it's just fucking, I st it's on my workout playlist. It comes up all the friggin' time, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then if you really want to have some fun, people, go Google Chariot live and i believe it's in like fucking russia or some shit like that it might not be russia <laughs> hold on chariot the video live. I posted? no it's another one okay no it's in Mos. it's in moscow okay it's the chariot live in plan b moscow from 2012 just watch the first three minutes it is fuck the bass player. You know how normally when you stage dive, you kind of like will turn your back falling into the crowd. He mm -hmm. jumps forward with his legs and then kicks his legs out and then just goes straight back. Like with his bass guitar in his hand, he just fucking jumps and like rather than doing a rotation in the air, just jumps and then just kicks his leg out. I mean, it is one of the most batshit crazy things. And then, of course, there's the live video that you just got to tell people about from the uh, where their concert gets shut down and so they go to a person's house in Perth. I guess it's Perth, Perth Australia, where yeah. they just fucking, they're like guitar players on the roof of the house and people are <laughs> jumping through the windows and shit. I'm like, this is this is amazing, dude. So fucking. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh. So like, it's incredible. When you think about what does Kierkegaard mean by passionate intensity? I just want someone to play that video. <laughs> I'd be like, that is what passionate intensity looks like. And it honestly, yeah. is, it does look a little bit like being filled with the spirit. And there's, I think, not mm. a coincidence that that's a, you know, in certain evangelical circles, that's a huge thing. Not in our circles um, that, we, that we came up in. Um, but certainly, I think youth evangelical culture, when we came up, was very dominated by the like, uh, romantic inner feelings. Uh, we want to produce uh, a spiritual experience for you of God through music. 
Um, and I think that some of the, the metalcore stuff did it so much better because you really had an experience mm. <laughs> both watching mm. and listening to this stuff. And you were, if you're in those crowds, I saw Norma Jean live once. And yeah, it's, it's oh. exactly that. Like you feel like you are part of a community that's engaging mm. in a radical act uh, all together yeah. and in support of each other. And that's a really cool experience. You can't replicate that anywhere else. I agree, man. Oh, uh, yeah. Whenever I watch those videos, I'm like, okay, man, that's it. Time to get the band back together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. You, if you watch that, you you feel like I got to do that shit. Like, yeah, I'm going to yes. break my leg, but I, I got to do it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go crazy on stage. I don't want this like stand gently on stage with my instrument or behind the microphone. No, I'm going to fucking throw myself against things and hurt myself. Yeah, dude. No shoe yeah. games. Full Dillinger escape plan. Burn the fucker <laughs> down. Yeah, dude, I my favorite my favorite video of Dillinger is when fucking what's his name, the lead singer again? I could totally forget. Greg Pajato. The the most the most recent one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fucking they're at Virgin Megastore and he literally runs on top of the crowd. Yeah. Not not <laughs> like into a cartoon. The crowd. Yes, like a cartoon running on air. He's running <laughs> on people's heads. I'm like or and I'm like what the he just gets a fucking head of steam and just starts running. And I'm like, oh my god! It is like one of the craziest live videos ever. <laughs> like, I, I just, I need some of that in my life sometimes. Yeah, I, I can confirm that I've seen Dillinger twice, and uh, they're they were even tamer when I saw them, I think, than in the early days because they had basically every every tour, their first maybe five years in existence was canceled in the midst of it because yeah, either injuries, right? Injuries, or they were banned from everywhere because they broke everything. <laughs> Yeah, they got banned in Glasgow from a bar that I used to frequent, a club called the Cat House, because I guess it uh, one of the dudes was like climbing from the the ceiling vents and like he like ripped down some of the um, air conditioning <laughs> piping and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, they were banned. And they literally, I think, burnt down a club. I think they not burnt down, but like set it <laughs> set it on fire and they had to like shut it down and fire yeah. engines and stuff like that. So like that, they, there was some real shit going on there. Ugh. Yeah, that's good, man. When you when you tweeted that video of that chariot concert, that's one of my favorite, like, kind of, I guess, music video things to to revisit every once in a while. I went down a deep, a deep kind of chariot Dillinger, etc. hole um, a couple years ago, and uh, yeah, I just I kind of got a little obsessed with those live shows. There's something about it; they're infectious. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's something special about metalcore. I mean, Converge is the great metalcore band of our of this era, right? And they're the ultimate example of this. Of I don't I don't think any other form of metal or hardcore, any other subgenre, quite captures the level of intensity that that subgenre does. Um, and so there's something really affirmative, I think, about that because it allows you to have full, unadulterated, unrestricted expression. And when you go to shows, mm. I saw Converge live a couple of years ago. It's just, it, it's like a, um, what do you call it? It's like a pandemic of it or, you know, it becomes epidemic, the, the emotional expression. Like everybody's doing it together. It's a really, like, that's the kind of thing that I think church experiences are trying to do. And certainly for some people, it's not going to work. Like they're going to be scared, right? But for this audience, it's the, it's like the full encapsulation of a religious experience. And I know some people would, would like, uh, look askew at that characterization of it. Um, but I think it's a good thing. I think it's the the good part of 
what religious or one of the good parts of religious experience is that it can do that communal thing together where everyone's engaging in this in this mutual feeling they're supporting one another and doing it and that's a really positive thing hmm and notice yeah, that definitely. unlike early hardcore shows uh here at a metacore show uh, and this kind of emotional expression is happening if you fall or get hurt or whatever people help you because they are fully in support everyone's fully in support of one another Mm, uh, that's, a, exactly. that's a distinction from early hardcore shows where it's like, you know, just want to fuck you up. And then, you know, it's very like a libertarian, like <laughs> dominance thing. Not even libertarian, it's worse than that. It's like a dominance thing, right? I'm just going to show you that I can dominate mm. you. Hmm. Yeah. Makes me want to get to a live concert like oh, ASAP. Dude, got to go to a show. This fucking so long. <laughs> have you seen, have you seen, uh, I don't know if it's, I think it was a TikTok trend where it was like, all these people, these young dudes and chicks that were like isolated, they're like, okay, so they like got their guitar out and they're like, okay, so this next song and they're like do, pretending like they're doing like a live concert from their bedroom. It's really, it's really kind of like a cute <laughs> little trend. Yeah. And they're just like, and then they like play a song with just them with their like, like their little, I don't know, what is it? 15 watt Fender, Fender fucking uh, amp and their guitar and shit like that. And it's just them in their bedroom kind of doing a concert because they just need to perform somehow. Um, a couple of them are actually really freaking good, man. A couple of them are really good, but yeah, it's kind of fun. I think people, we need live concerts. Bring back live events. Yeah, it's a I both mean, and thing, right? I love the bedroom concerts. They're really cool. Uh, and they allow for a different form of expression, um, yeah. which I think is really interesting and, and good. But yeah, they don't serve the same purpose as live concerts do. So we need those back. Yeah. I feel you. All right, cool. Let's put a button on this episode, man. Um Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another. You can tweet at us, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to throw us some coin. And you can get access to bonus episodes and join that Discord chat. And uh, I think we don't have to do or say anything else unless there's anything else that you can think of that we have to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasta Dania Marikonski.